News from the Bunker is brought to you by Tucker Survival. Welcome to News from the Bunker, special report. We've got a special guest in the studio tonight. Ron Jones is going to be talking to us about the history of the Spanish flu in America and around the world. He's got some fascinating uh, information he wants to share. Uh, I know a lot of people are kind of comparing what we're going through with the coronavirus, Wuhan flu, that it's the same thing. I think after listening to what Ron has to say, you're going to find out that there's vast differences between the Spanish flu and what we're going through right now. So, Ron, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit? All right. Well, it's good to be in the bunker, man. Yes. <laughs> Glad you found your way here. Yes, man. I was, uh, as I said before we started taping, uh, I, I was a little bit down, and I heard Ted Nugent's post, and I got fired up and decided it was time to give you a call and come to the bunker, man, <laughs> and do my part. But uh, my formal education is in kinesiology, and I'm a historical kinesiologist, which means I study the history of movement and the art of movement and the science of movement, but I'm also a credential health science teacher. So um, we're not talking about movement and physical education tonight, but we are definitely talking about health science. And I, you mentioned that uh, what people think of the flu today is maybe not like the flu of yesteryear. And I get some criticisms like, well, we can't make a comparison of the, you know, the flu and it's different. I say, yeah, it's really different. <laughs> yes. So we're gonna talk about that because the 1918 flu was a killer, killer epidemic. And just uh, to get this out there, my, my research data comes from the largest digital archive in the world for the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic in the United States. And it, it's a combination effort at University of Michigan, which University of Michigan, if you're into, if you're into uh, you know, worksite wellness and public health and things like that, they have a great reputation there already and also the Centers for Disease Control. And there are a lot of people that will push back in the CDC of today, but you know a lot of this data was published years ago, long before 2020 and any kind of politics that are going on now. And it's very well documented, very well researched. So at some point you have to hang your head on some kind of rack. Yeah. And I think it's pretty solid information. And I just, as a, as a history person that has studied history for decades now, I'm just absolutely fascinated by what I've been learning about what actually happened a hundred years ago. And one of my uh, friends, uh, uh, he's a film documentary maker, he asked me, he goes, what are people saying? I go, they're basically not saying anything. They don't know what to say. <laughs> when I start talking about what actually happened, because I'm gonna talk about different cities in the United States and what, what they actually did and the, the measures that they took and, and there are similarities, but sometimes they're radically different. And so uh, we might not agree today, we might not understand, but I think as, as a history person, it's just fascinating and there's a lot to learn from it. So I know I did a quick study when all this happened. Yeah. That's kind of what I do. If there's economy issues, I'll like go back, Great right. Depression, what would they do then? Right. So I did a quick study on the Spanish flu and found out just from that quick study, it's like, yeah, that was way different. It was yeah, uh, very different and at the speed at which it went through. Yeah, at least at least I would say from what I've read, uh, and even the CDC has conflicting numbers, as I discovered um, in the last 24 hours. But what I'm citing tonight from uh, the 2006 conference, um, 
pandemic influenza, past, present, and future, communicating today based on the lessons from the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. Centers for Disease Control, United States Department of Health and Human Services. They said that uh, about 550,000 people died in the United States from that flu. Yeah. And we know, uh, if you look at the global deaths, you know, there, it was at least like 50 million people, maybe as high as 100 million. It's pretty significant. Yeah. You know, it, it was a killer. And in fact, they called it a hit and run disease because it came through very, very quickly. One of the things I've learned from looking at all this study, I've, I've studied like over a dozen different cities in the United States now on their summary reports. It came in quickly and it left pretty quickly in comparison to what we're seeing today. Yeah, that's what I had studied. It like came, went, came back, and then it was just gone. Yes. Like just disappeared. And I've had some people criticize, well, you know, the second wave is like, well, let me tell, let's talk about the second wave. Because the yeah. second wave is like, okay, here's the first wave. We know that it comes in and there's a big spike. And most of the second waves are kind of like that or like that. Uh, I think it was Detroit. They had a pretty significant second wave. But the second wave was just a little bump. But if you took it, if I kind of like to think of the danger zone, um, that really high infectious period. Typically, from what I've seen in my research uh, on all this, is about two to six weeks. Like it's in and it's out, and two to six weeks they're opening back up. Um, and yes, there were some cities that uh, went longer. But basically, you started seeing it in American cities where there was action taken in late August, but it was probably more common in uh, September into early October before things started shutting down and restrictions were put in place. And then Many cities by uh, before New Year's, they were opening back up or opened back up and they were rolling. Some cities did roll through January, February with a tapering off period. But um, again, if, if you want to try to put it into a bumper sticker summary here at the beginning of the show tonight, about two to six weeks was the critical like danger zone period. And, um, you know, by New Year's, a lot of cities were rolling yeah. and it really... It, it was circulating in Europe before then and even in the United States. And there's some reports that it was actually circulating a couple years before then. It just wasn't as bad to get people's attention. But um, that's kind of the gist of it. It was very quick hitting. It was really, really harsh. Two to six weeks, the worst part was done. Um, some cities shut the schools. Some did not. Um, some put hardcore restrictions like in Salt Lake City. Um, actually, the state of Utah shut the whole state down on October 10th, 1918. Basically, just shut everything down. And then by December 30th, the schools were open again. So they had about a five-week period, you know, where um, they were pretty locked down, and then they started to open. And then by the end of the year, you saw things all the way open again, for the most part. And that's what's interesting to me is the lack of technology that they had, they, right. even like the mask, because there's you can find pictures of them all wearing the mask. Yeah, you think about the mask in 1918 compared to like what we have now with the technology. Yeah, so the mask was probably pretty much worthless. You know, yeah, it's just cloth, you know. But they went through that pandemic and you know got on with their lives. Yeah, dealt with it. Yeah, you know the medical stuff was not really advanced. Right, you know, and how they tried to deal with things. Well, let's talk about the mask a minute. Because I, you know, when this whole thing started as a health professional, I'm like, well, what's the deal with the mask? I started reaching out to my PhD friends and 
people that were public health professionals. Like, what's the deal with the mask? And there was some confusion with them. It's like, well, we don't need to wear the mask because, you know, CDC is in the next week. It's like, well, we got to wear the mask. I'm like, hey, man, they said to wear the mask now. It's like, so one of the things I was looking at when I got all this data, I mean, I got piles of stuff over here, is what do they do about the mask? And there was a lot of controversy about the mask. Back then. Back then. Anti-mask. People were arguing were about the it. mask. They were pushing back on the mask. And some people, uh, like uh, Utah, did not have a state man, even though they shut the aggressive move to shut the state down, they did not decide to mandate masks. But if you look at San Francisco, because uh, we're in California and San Francisco up north, they had the most restrictive uh, mask policies. Um, and they also had some of the worst statistics in the whole country <laughs> for, for the, the 1918, 1919 like flu. Yeah, and, yeah. and there was a lot of controversy. The, the physicians were arguing about whether or not they were they were effective. Um, of course, they were probably, you know, maybe built out of different materials than today and maybe not. I mean, a bandana, I don't know how much a bandana changes over the course yeah. of 100 years, but they were using chiffon masks and they were trying to use masks that were more stylish for women. It was the same kind of a thing. <laughs> same arguments, same thing. And, and <laughs> it was cited that the people hated the mask. Yeah. They hated the mask. In fact, when San Francisco... Uh, lifted the orders for the mass, it, it was cited in the summary report. There were like mass clogging up the drains. <laughs> it was just like people just flung the mask everywhere. They couldn't wait to get rid of them. So from a human psychology standpoint, you know, in some ways we don't change a lot. We do want to interact with people. We do key so much off facial expressions. And uh, one of the things that's so sad for younger people, and this is, this is what we don't really know from a psychological trauma standpoint, is what kind of effect these masks are going to have on infants. I was at the post office the other day and there was a little baby, I mean like a year old, in a stroller and she had like a little mask on and I was surprised she was actually wearing it because my kids would have ripped it off, you know. <laughs> and I had my mask on because, you know, you have to have the mask on the post office and I'm looking at her and I'm trying to squint and smile but she can't tell and that's like we're just, but her eyes locked and we're just looking at each other and I'm like, I wonder what she's thinking. You know, because it's it, it's very disturbing. Now, that's what concerned me. Yeah, is babies. I mean, all they can go by is very basic. You know, right. What they see, what they taste, yeah. what they can feel, and the face is really important to baby bonding. Well, like the mother and the father and different people in society. If you get into uh, human development, what they put in their mouths is critically important to how they learn about the world. Yep. Their mouth is a sensory organ, and they that's why they're constantly putting stuff in their mouths. Even though it sounds nasty to us, <laughs> it's part of an infant's development. Yep. Like, yeah. You know, I, I got to talking with some occupational uh, therapists about this that work with children. They, they have a whole another skill set than I do, but they, they were enlightening me on the, the importance of the mouth as a sensory organ and a, and a learning tool. Yeah. For infants, so yeah, there's a it, it's all over the place. There were there were many different policies. Um, I can tell you some big things I've got out of the report so far. One is that um, the whole country didn't do it the same way. Everybody kind of had a little bit different approach. Some worked better, some did not. What I'm seeing even in the reports from the 2006 conference where they brought all these experts in on the pandemic is that there's still some debate whether the social distancing was at um, efficient. 
which yeah. I thought was interesting that that because I always thought, well, that's pretty much you know a standard strategy, and there's still some debate about how how much that influence actual infection rates. Yeah. But what I'm seeing is uh, is this: the ability for the United States in 1918 to come together quickly and make a decision and implement major changes sometimes happen in 24 hours. And I look at what's happening today and people are arguing and fighting and this thing's dragging out forever and it's been cited in the data that when you when you don't do it right, the thing just hangs on and it doesn't go away. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And they did it without the technology. They did it without <laughs> the know? technology. A lot of face-to-face um, -face meetings. And, and, and I think people, one of the things that's been cited is that it's extremely important to be uh, transparent with the information yep. and tell the American people what's going on because when the American people know the truth, they're a lot better about you know, getting on board and making a team effort. And that was super important in World War II. And that, that, that'd be a topic, another great show in an area that I've researched quite a bit, is the industrial side of World War II in terms of making decisions. But it's similar to the flu in terms of like a lot of people had to come together and make decisions very, very quickly because it was a life and death situation. So literally... Um, there were cities that got together with a panel of experts, community leaders, medical professionals, and in 24 hours, they had made the decision and put everything into action. And this happened up in Seattle. In fact, Seattle did it so quickly. In the summary report, it said people went out. They didn't. Even, a lot of people didn't even know the city had shut down yet. They went out and things were boarded up, and they were they were like clueless or wandering around, like, well, what happened? I mean, it's like a bunch of cattle had nowhere to feed, you know. <laughs> They were absolutely stupefied. It happened so quickly. And there was no messing around about it. It's like, this is what we've got to do. So here's the thing, man. As a history person, and, and, and someone that I like to think I'm reasonably intelligent if I have the right information, had we been transparent with the history of how this thing is managed, this thing meaning pandemics in general, I mean, really, like, how did they do it in 1918? I would have had a much different attitude going into this thing, and I think I would have been more compliant in certain ways because I would have known what people actually did. Now, unfortunately, today in 2020, there are so many people that think anything over than anything older than 10 years is irrelevant. Yeah. It doesn't matter anymore because we do things so much better. That's bullcrap. You know, there's a lot to learn from history, and what we could have learned is like, hey, man, we got to make some decisions quickly. And no one's going to like it, or at least everyone's not going to like it, but it's what we have to do. And I think just based on what I think I know now after going through dozens of different um, summary reports from the largest database in the world on this situation, um, we could have been in and out of this thing in a lot less time. I don't know if it would have been two to six weeks. I'm not a medical expert, but I can tell you that in 1918, that was, that was the hot zone period. Yes, there were cities that went a couple months and three months. It's almost uh, like their lack of technology worked for their favor because it's like we have so much technology, we get analysis paralysis. Yeah. Well, we need studies. We need this. We need that. And back then, they didn't have any of that. It's like they saw what was happening. All right, I think we need to do this. Yeah. And they took action. They took really rapid action. That's something that uh, has really kept coming up in, in all the reports. It doesn't matter what city that I read. Even the ones that like quote unquote lag behind the rest of the cities, they were so much more efficient <laughs> than what we're doing today. Yeah. 
you know, because I mean, we were like talking about it, it seems like for a month before we did much of anything. So, um, and we, there were some people watching, they might not like that, but I'm just telling you what happened, okay? I'm reporting what happened. And we might want to think that, oh, we're, our rights are being violated if we have to be told to do this or that. But that's just how you have to deal with a global pandemic. It's just the way that it is. Um, and some of this stuff goes back to biblical times, certain mm -hmm. things that people did. Uh, one thing that came up, too, was that um, a lot of schools did not shut down. And the, the premise for keeping the schools open was interesting. A lot of people felt like the children were much more protected and safer in a, in a school. And it wasn't just uh, maybe because there was family violence at home or there wasn't enough food. The medical community was much more integrated into the school system. So they had physicians in the schools and nurses, and they were checking the children every day. If the children were infected or they were sick, they were immediately sent home. And then they had a lot of quarantines in place in those days, although that varied by city too. But they were very, very well monitored at the schools. And then what the schools did or the school sites did is they collected all this data. So in Los Angeles, they used that. I, I wouldn't even say regional data. I'm going to say like neighborhood data because um, this particular area, let's say if we're talking Los Angeles County where I live, Pasadena would have a different set of data than... Uh, you know, going down the street to Pacoima or, or someplace like that. So they would open up literally a certain neighborhood based on the stats. And that was contributed to Los Angeles being able to open up their schools so much more rapidly and efficiently because they did it by pocket area. They didn't make a blanket decision to hold everybody down when there was only like one or two problem areas. I thought that, you know, for this is 100 years ago, there were no computers. Yeah. I thought this was very, very sophisticated you know, and, and very, very forward thinking. And so that that seemed to be pretty universal across the country, is that the kids are better off in the schools. Now today you're seeing, a, like it's, at least in California with the teachers unions, a huge pushback to keep the kids out of the schools. And the teachers don't like it. I'm a credential teacher in three different subject areas. So I just report the facts and a lot of teachers don't like it. It's like, hey man, I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm reporting the history. I'm reporting the information. And, and it's up to you to disseminate that and, you know, think about it as you will. But it is what it is. Yeah. Right? A lot of kids stayed in school and they used that data to manage the disease and um, get things up and running faster. So speaking of data, let's dig into some of this data. Well, let's uh, let's talk about this. I and like this, data. Yeah. And actually, this is, a, this is about a 50-page report. And I've I've read the whole thing, and I can give you the link for this. If people just want to dig into, this is basically in 2006. It was a big workshop on the pandemic flu. And one of my public health um, professionals, you know, she's enlightened me. To, it's like, hey, there was a plan in place. We might not have followed that plan, but there were a lot of plans and a lot of meetings and, and a lot of wisdom that came out of the, the previous influenzas. So I'll just read you a couple things from this. It's a fascinating report. If you really want to get into it, I highly recommend it. And it's... It's, it's written in a way that you can understand. Because I've got some other stuff up here, like unless you have a degree in statistics, it, it could be a little tough to get through. Um, and here's something that in 2006, this is what they wrote. One of the things the secretary has recognized is that communication is, is as important as any other part of the response. Communication has been referred to as the social Tamiflu. 
We at HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services, recognize that in an influence, if an influenza pandemic occurs, we will be the first generation to be faced with the additional demands of a 24-hour news cycle. They're recognizing the difference. Therefore, we must inform, but not inflame. And this is written in 2006. They wanted to be transparent with the data and the information for the American people. They suggested we do not inflame and over-dramatize the situation. Now, the health director in Detroit was a hunter, and I know a lot of your listeners are into hunting. And because his knowledge on hunting, he understood the threat response and the adrenaline response in animals and how that taints the meat and things like that and what it does to the immune system. And so it wasn't just in Detroit, but also other cities. They were talking a lot about not creating a panic because when people get in a panic state is when they make decisions that um, they shouldn't normally or they wouldn't normally make. Now, you know, in a survival situation and the people you talk to, they're very big on not losing your head. And so that was also a prevailing thought in 1918. It's like, here's the information, here's what we need to do. We shouldn't be panicking, but this is just, this is the business. Because we're seeing it, like that lady in San Diego and the couple was eating and had their mask off and she goes up and pepper sprays them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, that's kind of insane to be that paranoid. Yeah. You're probably getting a lot of misinformation and that's well, why there's the data a, is so important. There's a lot of misinformation, that's the problem. There's like too much information. and. You know, I actually beat myself up a little bit because as a history person, I've been wondering like, well, what actually happened? And I, I'm surprised that I waited so long to really get into this because I really didn't get into this until the summer. And I think that part of it, the trigger for me was now they're talking about, you know, keeping the school shut down into the fall. It's like, it's, you know, I'm not saying the school should open. I'm not saying, saying they should be closed. But what I am saying is we need to start looking around. <laughs> And figure yeah. out what they did back in the day. And for the people say, well, this flu is not like the other flu. I agree. It's not like the other flu. But there are some things that we can learn from history. Yeah. And I'm not going to deny that. So as I mentioned, they're talking here about there was a minimum of 50 million people, possibly 100 million people that died in the 1918 flu. If you adjust for population, that would be 300 million today It's cited. And this is fascinating. In three weeks in the 1918 flu. It killed more people than AIDS has in 24 years. Wow. That gives you, and this is written in 2006, so that gives you an idea of the, the killer punch um, of this flu. There was a 15 to 53% morbidity rate for this flu. In San Antonio, over 90% of the households had at least one family member with the illness. Most of the deaths occurred in healthy adults. In army camps, the death toll was routinely over 5%, sometimes as much as 10%, and in some communities as high as 30%. And with this flu, in sometimes it was just a matter of hours and people were dead. So this is like the classic definition of a pandemic. Oh, this was... Because when I started looking that up, you know, what is a pandemic? Right. You know, and it's something that's, you know, basically in every country on the planet... It's blasting through. Yeah, that is the true definition, and that's basically what this. And there's, thing it doesn't matter what you do. There's going to where it did. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do. There's a lot of people that are going to die. Yeah. Period. That's just the way it's going to be. Um, it, it it's cited here. It took special trains to carry away the dead. In fact, in one of the city summaries, it talked about spouses having to keep their own spouses in bed after they died for up to like six days. Wow. Because there was literally no place 
to take the bodies to process them. That's how many people were dying. I mean, this is radical. There were people breaking ribs from coughing because the coughing was so violent. They were bleeding at times, although this was less common, from the eyes and the ears from this flu. Um, there were enough anecdotal reports from reliable observers that proved some deaths were extraordinarily rapid, occurring in 24 hours or less. And so basically it's from 24 hours to six days was the mortality rate with this thing for a lot of people. And this is interesting to your viewers. This would be interesting to know. So it has a context paragraph in this, in this report. And remember, this is at the end of World War I. So World War I, I think, ended in November or of 11th, I think. So context, we were at war. It was the first total war. It was the first time the government tried to fully control the public. So there was a lot of government control during this flu before yeah. the flu hit. That was already in place. The pandemic was known as Spanish flu, but we know it did not start in Spain. It was called Spanish flu because Spain was not at war, so there was a free press there. Most of Europe had a censored press. The U.S. press was more open, but still, the new Sedition Act was passed. Now, this is what your viewers will take to heart as very interesting. This was a law that made the Patriot Act look like it was written by the ACLU. Hmm. So this was highly restricted, the Sedition Act, in World War I. And there was a lot of government control then. Yeah. Okay? But anyway, this, this, was a, this was a bad Jose, man. This is a bad Jose. Um, they talked about there was a lot of propaganda then, and a lot of this was tied into the war. And one of the things that was interesting that I didn't realize before I got into this, during this time, at least 25% of the doctors and nurses were in the military. Now, that is political, because when you start having the government control everything and a quarter of your, your medical community is part of the military, it does matter. And I don't know to what extent that all uh, went through the whole thing, but they did cite that. It's kind of interesting to see how some things are just the same. That a lot Even of things. Even though 100 years has gone by, it's I'm, like the same type it, of mindsets, the same type of things going on. It, and it's awful to say, but sometimes I just start laughing because of the similarities. Like, it's, it's terrible that so many if people died. If you were to died. read that, people would be like, yeah, I, that's what's going on today. I was like, well, I, actually, this was back in 1918. I can't believe <laughs> the arguing about the mass. The, should we social distance? Should we not? Should we close the school? Should we not? Um, how long this should be open? And by the way, um, there was a lot of illogical closing, irrational clothing. Uh, closing. The saloons would stay open, but like, the parks would close. Like now. Right. We're trying to keep the bar or the liquor stores open. Well, and there was a thought, too, and this goes into human psychology, that they, they didn't want to shut down. And, and, not, and I would say not all cities were this way. But some cities were very reluctant. In fact, they didn't totally shut down the amusement because they were worried about the psychological uh, blowback from the public if they didn't have an outlet for uh, getting rid of their stress. And so that's something you got to be really careful about is there's an immune response to not being able to socialize, not being able to go to a ballpark, not being able to go see some live music. And when you start playing with those things, you start interfering with people's immune responses. And also their just mental stability. And now we're seeing this huge spike in suicides. We're seeing spikes in family violence because these things that kept people kind of blowing off steam have been removed. 
Well, like the whole entertainment industry is really suffering. Right. There's a movement now called the SOS to save all the stages, all yeah. the venues, because they're right. not making any money, even starting to make movies again. A lot of the studios, they would start and then they're locked down again. And it's like, how do you make a movie social distancing? Right, yes. Yeah, you're so in there and people are close and they're holding lights and mics and you got actors that are interacting and it's like... Well, you're I have, seeing an entire industry yeah. that could be wiped out, you know, by shutting down like this. I have the L.A. report. We might have to pull it out. Because in L.A., they kept shooting. But they had a moratorium or a um, restriction on certain types of scenes they could shoot. And so they weren't allowed to shoot any mob scenes. Because remember, this is in World War One era when all the mobster movies were coming yeah. out in Chicago and, you know, this kind of stuff. So they couldn't shoot any mob scene movies during the flu uh, pandemic. And then uh, there was something else. There was like two big restrictions they had, but they kept they kept shooting. Yeah. But that was just in Hollywood. I don't know outside of Hollywood um, how that factored in. Like New York and stuff on the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they talk a lot about the importance of communi communication. And um, this is something interesting that there in Phoenix, a rumor started that dogs carried influenza and people started shooting their pets. Oh, wow. Yeah. And here's the one uh, about the, the spouses. they were doing dying. that in China. They were wanting people oh, were to they? bring their dogs out and, yeah. and were wanting to euthanize them. Yeah. So that was a thing. It's the same thing. You get in a panic state. Yeah. You start making so irrational people decisions. People to bring their pets out and have them destroyed. And it's horrible. So this paragraph states, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance. People heard from authorities and newspapers that everything was going fine. But at the same time, bodies were piling up. Imagine your spouse lying in bed for six to eight days. There were coffin shortages. The dead were piled up where they died. There were police going around asking people to literally bring out their dead. And so, yes, I agree. Today's flu is not the same. <laughs> if we're just looking at what happened. And thank God. I mean, this is, this is pretty radical, right? Uh, Takeaway message at the end of this part of the report, quote, false assurance is the worst thing you can do. Don't withhold information because people will think you know more. Tell the truth. Don't manage the truth. If you don't know something, say why you don't know and say what you need to do to know. Drown people with the truth rather than withhold it. And that's why I'm here. Because I was talking to my documentary filmmaker just today, and he goes, Ron, you need to be in front of people talking about this. He goes, no one is talking about this. I'm like, why aren't people talking about this? Well, it's like Dr. <laughs> Fauci coming out telling us, you know, we don't need to wear the mask. Well, then he comes out, you know, recently, a few weeks back, and said basically he said that because he was trying to protect the, the mask supply. Yeah. You know, well, you lied to everybody. Yeah. You could have just came out and said that. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that position, you can't be doing that. You well, know, you need to be truthful with people. Yeah. Now people aren't going to trust you. One thing that came out in this, and again, I'm trying to read into this without any confirmational bias and, and just trying to keep an open mind. But um, the politicians that cited in the reports, they want to keep the same storyline going, right? Yeah. The medical community, they roll with the data. That's what's supposed to happen. If they see different results and different data and, and things are happening, they might need to change and they should change midstream and reverse a decision or, or take a different route. And so that, 
that made me back off a little bit and say, you know, I need to give these people space because, but I also need to trust them that they are using the right data without the political attachments. And I think th this is me personally talking now. I think that's what's happened in 2020 is we become very distrustful of people because of all the politics involved and, and the money yeah. part of it. Um, so here's a few more factoids here from this conference about the 1918 flu that I think people need to know. At that time, it was equivalent of 9-11 happening every day. Now, if you live through 9-11, think about that. That's how bad this was. For example, assassination attempts against Lenin were on page 12, <laughs> right? <laughs> Ahead of this story, the czar had been executed, right? Um, 1918 case fatality rates in one to four-year-old children is, equiv is equivalent to what it would take now for 15 to 16 years of fatalities. So to get that same amount of death in 1918, today, at the time of this, 2006, it would take 15 plus years to get the same amount of deaths as we saw in just one you know, year in 1918. That's how deadly this was for young children. In fact, I just learned that um, a lot of the pandemics have a have a U-shaped curve. It's not the bell curve that goes this way. It's actually like the letter U. This one had a W-shaped curve. And the W in the middle was a 20 to 40-year-old uh, spike of deaths. And so a lot of people that were very healthy, we can say in the primal life, were just dying. It wasn't just the really young, and it wasn't just the really old and the feeble. It was also the people in the middle. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, to put this in perspective, the median time between onset and time of death was eight to 10 days. Wow. So, you know, um, that's pretty intense. Now, were there people that had very mild bouts of this? You know, I was reading... Um, because there's a section in here in literature, and uh, very few people actually wrote about it that were authors. Fitzgerald, I think it was Fitzgerald, or I can't remember who the author was. He had a mild case, and his 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 position on it was he was upset because it delayed his trip to Europe. <laughs> but uh, the majority of it was pretty extreme then, from what you. Yeah, we know yeah. a lot of people got infected, and yeah. and not as many people died that got infected. And I can I can pull up some of that because yeah. I have those summarized in the front of the reports. I'll get into that in a minute. Now, were um, they actively trying to find like a vaccine? Yes, in those days there was. In fact, uh, in Seattle, where they build a lot of ships, they inoculated about a hundred percent of the ship workers, and they did like a double inoculation with a lot of them. And they said, oh, this is keeping them from getting sick. And then it was cited, didn't do anything. Um, but in, in uh, uh, Salt Lake City, they actually had a flu vaccination um, public um, campaign. And there were thousands of people that lined up for it. So, yes, they did have a, a vaccination. It didn't seem to do much. I mean, I think the vaccinations today are, are much more effective than the vaccinations 100 years ago, from what I know. Vac vaccinations are not my my specialty area and cup of tea. So that, that's a whole nother thing that I probably shouldn't get into. But to answer your question, yeah, they were doing it then. They were doing it. Um, so logic suggests that social distancing measures helped, but I am not convinced that those interventions had an effect that was anything more than random. And this is one of the experts at the workshop 
uh, speaking about this. Some tentative evidence shows that social distancing interventions did help another uh, expert cited before he spoke. So it's like, you know, there's some gray area there, which actually kind of surprised me. Um, one of the issues with the transmission of the flu in 1918 was because we were at war, there were a lot of major military uh, bases close to the big cities, and there was a constant flow of people in and out because of the military. In fact, uh, Camp Dodge is outside of Des Moines, Iowa, and that was a really hot spot because they were still building Camp Dodge, and so you had civilians going in and out doing the construction work um, in the middle of all this. And this is where the government control part gets really interesting because because we had to win the war, there was a lot of things in an override state like we just had to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, damn the torpedoes type of thing. And then in other cases, they did yank back and they did quarantine the bases, but it wasn't always the case that the military got to override everything, but there was some of that going on because of the, um, the severity of the situation. Of course, and then when we won the war, everybody went out in the street and they partied like crazy. <laughs> but by then, it was mostly over because, um, you know, that was November 11th. So and this was truly a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, you know, it was in Europe. Well, it actually is supposed to have started in Kansas. Yeah. But it was, it was a bigger deal in Europe earlier in the year. And from what I've read, um, it got bad here in the United States in the very end of August, early September, or as late as early October. Um, and by then, I'd say by October, most of the cities were, they were in, they were in it at some level. You yeah. know? Um, but it's cited here, it is important to understand how quickly the pandemic moved in military camps, two and a half weeks. So that's like in and out, peak period. And in the civilian community, it was more like five to six weeks. And so the peak was a matter of days or sighting. So if you combine all that together, we've got a two to six week hot zone, danger zone for this flu that was called a hit and run disease to move in, blast through the, the herd, if you will, and then move on out. Yeah. And of course there was some tapering and there was a little bit of buildup, but I like to simplify things. And so my big walk away, takeaway from going through hundreds of pages of data now is that it was about a two to six week uh, danger zone. Now we went, our schools in California, where I was teaching, we went home in March. Yeah. And now we're talking about the kids not going back to school at least full time until next year. Yeah. Well, we're, that could be like, we could be looking at a whole year here. <laughs> I, and I'll be honest with all your listeners. I haven't seen one single school anywhere in the country from this information that I went through that stayed shut down for a full semester, let alone two and let alone over the summer as well. Yeah. Now, I know it's a different flu and I know it's a different time, but I'm just reporting the information. I'm reporting the facts. This is well documented. It's well researched. The schools were not shut down that long. Yeah, They just weren't. And maybe this is a completely different kind of flu, and it's a long, ongoing flu, and there's nothing we can do about it. It's going to hang on a year or two or three. I don't know. I'm not a physician and an epidemiologist. But I can tell you as a history researcher in health science that this is what happened. It is what it is, and we can at least talk about it. Um, 
It rolled across the country and around the world in eight days to three weeks. There were three waves in 1918 too, which I didn't realize until I got into this. I've heard about two waves, but there were actually three. Um, the first wave was widely missed because symptoms were mild with little complications, four deaths. The second wave came six months after the first wave was noticed and it was lethal. It rolled across the country and the world in around, in around eight days to three weeks. That was the second wave. So even then, without airplane flight, yeah. it moved pretty quickly. So at some point, it's like you kind of have to ask, like, is there anything we can do, really? I mean, it, even then, it just, <clears throat> it just blew through the population. The velocity of the 1918 pandemic did not compare to those in 1957 and 1968. The 1918 pandemic moved much faster through communities. It's important to understand that all pandemics are different. In 1918, cities that were comparatively successful in mitigating the first wave were pressured to relax interventions. When relaxed, cities experienced experience that it never really went away. So this is something that I highlighted for me. When you relaxed, it never really went away. So I think, based on what I've learned so far, we should have been way more aggressive at the beginning, and we should have gotten this history information out and said, people, this is what really happened, and I know we've never seen anything like this before, but get ready because we're going there. Well, this was like the textbook. This, yeah. You know. It's all it's all there. It's like throwing away the textbook. Somebody just sent me a report from a school, I think it was Minnesota, the principal went in and they threw away all the textbooks in the library, all the books in the library that were over 10 years old. Ah. Because she said they're outdated and they don't serve the you know, culture. It's like, I mean, come on, you know? I mean, that's very, very dangerous, right? Yes. You have to be very careful about throwing away history that's over 10 years old. Uh, well, it's it, like when 2008, when we had the big recession, the first thing I did, I studied the uh, Great Depression. Yes. It's like, who made money in the Great Depression? Well, there was all kinds of people that did. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them were just problem solvers. You know, they saw opportunities. They didn't always have a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I've spoken to people from the Great Depression and learned from them mm -hmm. how they dealt with things. And here we have this example from 100 years ago that we could have delved into it. And, okay, let's see what they did, you know, to deal with their pandemic. Interestingly, and it's it's at the end of, I think it's this report, that um, there was no depression that came out of this flu, and there was no major recession. It was like a little bump in the economy, and we rolled right through it. Because remember, it's like two to six weeks. Yeah. We were in, and we were out, and then we had this massive period of economic gain yeah. and, until the Great uh, Depression, the stock market crash in 29. So we had like a 10-year growth period coming out of this. Now, part of that, I'm sure, was the war, and there was a lot of different factors. But the thing of it was, it's the flu itself did not crash the economy. Yeah. And the economy wasn't totally shut down uh, for months and months and months and months on end across the country. It was weeks. And as it was cited here, it was days. And that's what's frustrating you know? is we're not seeing what this was. You know, I mean, people are getting sick, but most people are saying are getting mild symptoms or not even know they're sick. Yeah. And yet we're shutting down the entire economy of the planet. And man, once those jobs are gone, those businesses are gone. We watched our food supply chain just crumble mm -hmm. because all the restaurants were closed. And yeah. the people don't understand distribution. Well, why can't they sell those eggs to the stores? Right. Well, that's a different set of buyers. Yeah. 
you know. And it wasn't the case in these days because people were, it's cited here in the research, that people were much more self-sufficient yeah. in 1918. And also, uh, San Francisco didn't rely as much on Los Angeles, who didn't re rely as much on Phoenix. And, and so now everything's so integrated. Now, the advantage of that is we have more protection over one system going down because we're all connected and we can backfill. But the disadvantage of that is now you're dependent on so many other things feeding in. And so that was something that I learned out of all this. And people did have gardens in those days yep. and, and chickens and things like that. And that factored into the depression quite heavily too. But uh, it was interesting because they talked about the economy here. And I was thinking that I would find a much more significant effect in the economy. And that wasn't the case. And again, they're, they're talking here at the end about um, the school services being so much better for the children from the medical standpoint. This is something interesting. If you get into civics, uh, in these days, civic or government courses uh, were taught in the high school curricula. And so at the time, you know, um, civic duty, civic responsibilities will, were inculcated. That's a kind of an old term that people don't use today, but it was basically like you're really taught over and over and over that this is the way you you know you need to behave and this is a proper decorum in certain social situations and uh, we don't do that anymore so the idea you know in the context in 1918 there was more civic education we were at a war there was more unity in terms of the country coming together so yeah. when this medical emergency happened i think people were more apt to to work together as a team. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of division today because we've lost, our, we've lost so much of our sense of teamwork. Um, it's just devastating, you know. Well, I think the family units were much stronger. And yes. And the families worked with other families, a lot of farming in America. So that whole idea of coming together and sharing resources was just a part of the fabric of America. And so for the people that have criticized me like earlier today, well, you know, this flu, you know, affects the internal organs. And it's not like the 1918 flu. Let's talk about the 1918 flu in the lungs. So as bad as a bout of real seasonal flu is, the H1 strain was far worse. It killed 2% or more of those stricken. In 1918, post-mortem examinations helped understand if it was a case of flu. The performance of those autopsies were harrowing. Influenza defiled the lungs with bloody, frothy fluid. Instead of floating, the lungs that were removed from the body during autopsy plummeted to the bottom of water buckets during autopsies. The bronchioles were, were fluid-filled, which explains the air-hunger patient's experience. I thought that was an interesting term, air-hunger. They frequently died from suffocation within 24 to 48 hours of developing symptoms. Some died later from secondary infections. And the psychological effects are here in the literature. There are very few biographies of famous people who contracted influenza. An example includes F. Scott Fitzgerald. He contracted influenza and was disappointed that it caused him not to be able to go overseas. He did not write about it in his later works. Thomas Wolfe wrote a literary masterpiece about the death of his brother. More fabled is how influenza altered the decision-making abilities of President Woodrow Wilson's and his chief aide, uh, Colonel Edward House, because they went over to do the peace talks, and I had known about this before, and they both got the flu, and it just whacked them like cognitively and mentally. 
And I don't think uh, President Wilson ever recovered from what I understand. So there was, there was some residual effects from a neurological standpoint, cognitive decisions, and also internal organs. So for those critics, that, that's something to put in your pipe and smoke a little bit. There were a lot of orphans in 1918 too. In fact, there was a, there was a huge um, social movement to place all the children because so many children ended up without a, a parent. And the death issue in 1918, the childhood mortality rate for children under five years old was one in five. Wow. One in five that got sick died. Um, and also they cited that today death has been taken out of the household. In these days, in 1918, or today, very few people have seen someone die. But in 1918, it was probably 90% of people saw someone die, like in front of their face, yeah. because it was so there. I mean, if your mother is dead in bed for what was cited six to eight days because there was nowhere to take her or take the father, that's pretty harsh, yeah. you know? So uh, we're not seeing that today. No, and we're really not hearing about children dying from this. I mean, I've heard very few stories. I think the first teenager died today or yesterday. It was actually in California. It was in uh, Madera, which is Central Valley, and it was cited, from my understanding, that he had some comorbidities, so there was also mm -hmm. some health problems there. Um, that's another thing that we're not talking enough about. We're talking about, well, you know, people are obese. Let's talk about preventing this stuff in the future. Yeah. Because I believe the Chinese word for crisis is opportunity. So we have this crisis, but it's bringing to light, you know, as a health educator for decades, I can tell you, like, there's a lot of people that really need to address some issues. You know, before this pandemic comes through. Well, that's what I would tell people. It's like you need to strengthen your immune system. Yes, that's exactly. That's really the best defense that you have. You right know, now. a little bit of physical fitness and you know, eating some decent food. I'm not talking about like trying to be the next Jack Lane, but come on, man, at least go for a walk and don't go to McDonald's every day. Yeah. You know, and, and have a food that doesn't have a whole list of ingredients that you can't pronounce. I mean, that it does factor in. And this constant use of uh, social media and technology and never being able to turn off our brain is, is, I don't think we understand how detrimental that can actually be. So if we look at, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cities. So in Los Angeles, because that's where I live, um, the death rate in LA was 494 to 100,000 people. And that actually was a little bit better than some cities. So this gives you a timeline, since we're so close to Los yeah. Angeles. September 26th, they recorded the first civilian case in 1918. And October 10th, the flu advisors met and drafted closures. The very next day on October 11th, there was a state of emergency issued in LA and they closed, uh, they sent out the closing orders and they shut the schools down. On November 21st, they lifted the flu ban. Uh, on December 2nd, this closure ban lifted. On December 10th, the schools closed again because there was another little wave. And then January 9th, they started to reopen and the last schools reopened on February 6th. So we've got a period from the end of September to basically the beginning of January. And then after that, it was a very slow taper off. So that's LA, um, that's how they did it. And if we go up to San Francisco, which was 
quite a bit different. They had some pretty sad statistics there. Remember, they had very restrictive mass policies. September 23rd, they recorded the first flu case in 1918. October 18th, they implemented bans and closures. So they waited quite a while to mm -hmm. make a decision. But they did not close the churches, but they had recommendations for them to go outside. October 21st, three days later, they made strong mask recommendations, and there was a whole mask patriotism rhetoric campaign implemented. <laughs> it was very patriotic to wear a mask <laughs> and very unpatriotic not to wear a mask in certain cities. It's got a flip-flop today. Yes. <laughs> well, it is what it is. It's interesting. October 25th, mask mandated for all except while eating, and they were very restrictive. November 16th, the ban started to be lifted, but with some restrictions. On November 25th, the schools reopened. On November 21st, the masks were removed. On December 7th, the flu increases again. On January 10th, the mask order was restated, <laughs> reinstated. On February 1st, the mask order was lifted again. And so that's why when, when the first time they got to take the mask off, the people were just flooding the sewers with them. But San Francisco, in comparison, had a 673 to 100,000 people death rate. So that was one of the highest or the highest in the country. So that's just in one state. L.A. was 494 to 100,000 death rate. L.A., uh, San Francisco was 673 to 100K. And how did they enforce the mask? They, were they writing fines? Oh, well, yes, uh, yeah, they were. In yeah. fact, uh, some, uh, some cities would actually put you in jail I think the fine was five bucks, if I remember right, in some of the cities, which, you know, it doesn't back sound, then. but back then, five dollars, I mean, yeah. that was a lot of money. Yeah. And you were put in jail, too. So, yes, it did. Some of it was very, very highly enforced and very vigorously enforced. Um, Detroit was the city that had the hunter who was uh, worried about the, the mental part of mm -hmm. Uh, people being in a panic state, and they got their first United States Navy cases September 20th, their first flu death October 1st. The media began to report it on October 3rd. On October 5th, they started requesting that people start making restrictions. October 12th, they canceled non-essential surgeries. By mid-October, they had implemented the bans, banned dances, meetings, furlough. They cut the soldier furlough so they couldn't come into Detroit. And then they banned sol soldiers from coming into Detroit on October 17th. And then the governor of the state of Michigan issues closure orders except for schools on October 19th. And then on October 24th, they close the schools. October 27th, peak crest was announced. On November 6th, the ban was lifted. So their period in Detroit went from about October 5th to November 6th. So about a month. Yeah. And that's a lot of action in a month. From a public policy standpoint, we're doing this. Now we're not doing it. We're doing this. Now we're not doing it. And all they had was radio. Yeah, you think about how they had to communicate all of this. Yeah, they yeah. had radio and billboards. And, and they also, Newspaper, well, they like leveraged that. the theaters, but some of the theaters were closed. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the arguments for keeping theaters open in movie houses was they, they could be used to do the propaganda and the public health education piece and how to deal with the flu and the hygiene part of it. So that was something in there. Now, but, did the government help the businesses that closed down? Like we're seeing that today with all these loans and stuff, or they basically said, you guys have got to shut down. That's a really did good they question. Find other ways to kind of 
you know. I haven't seen stay that. Stay in business. I, now, there are probably, I guess, maybe some, some help out there, but I, I haven't seen that highlighted in the reports yeah. now that you mentioned it. In Detroit, 28,986 people got infected. And this was the one city that did have a really significant spike because their first spike came through and 18,066 people got infected. Their second spike infected 10,920. Now, that's really significant. And I haven't seen that in the other cities. So Detroit didn't do as well, and they didn't have a death rate reported. It's interesting because some of the reports report the uh, stats in different ways. But I've, I've went through Kansas City, and in fact, Washington, D.C., for those of you that doubt the government, they had the worst statistics in the country, <laughs> like some of the worst, right? They had a death rate of 608 to 100,000 people, and then they closed the schools on October 2nd. And um, they had 33,719 people infected, and they had 2,895 deaths. Um, and I looked it up, and by May 2020 in Washington, D.C., that's this year, they had 3,657 infected. In 1918, they had 33,719 infected. So that's a little bit of a difference. I'm just saying, you might not like those statistics. I'm just reporting the information. Well, this is what's interesting. <laughs> You've spent your lockdown time studying some history. Yes. You know, if we all did that and started looking, we live in this age of information, you know, and spent our time digging instead of playing video games and, well, you know, mindless television. Yeah, and I'll put my education hat on here for people. I mean, my, my real specialty now is studying uh, classical leisure, like going back to ancient Greece, and that sounds completely ridiculous, but it's extremely important. It's been written throughout history, throughout the history of mankind, that you can judge the longevity and the health of the nation by how they spend their leisure time. It's that important. And so when you look around the United States today, when we have now what's called forced leisure in history, that's when people really go crazy because if they don't know how to spend their, their free time when they're not working, when they're not sleeping, when they're not eating, that's what leisure is. You're going to go nuts. And so this is the importance of hobbies and skills and especially doing things with your hands, whether you're hunting, fishing, working with wood, working with metal, auto shop, um, beading, macrame, knitting, sewing, cooking skills, playing a musical instrument. These are critically important, not just to make your brain fit, but to be mentally stable and to be a whole human being. Well, that's what I found with gardening. Yeah, gardening. So I'm out there, my hands are in the dirt, so you're like grounding with the dirt, right. pulling weeds. I'm seeing yeah. my plants. I'm seeing like, oh, there's a snail. You right. Know, you're, you're down in it. And you're close to it. The kids are and missing so much today. It's a real spiritual thing. When I grow plants from a seed, and yeah. I, I wait and I water and I wait, and then finally it pops up. It's like, that's like a miracle. That well, little here, tiny seed I could barely see, and now it's you know, it's getting huge, and I'm, I'm getting you know, tomatoes and stuff off of yeah. it. Yeah. Here's the thing, people. We've just went through the, the, most, the, the most significant period in your life to learn something new. We just went through. So I'm going to ask you right now, what did you learn? How did you improve in this pandemic lockdown? Because if you can't say something right now, you've blown your best opportunity ever to learn something. Because I had a lot of sitting around to do this spring. 
and, and summer. And I just, I have no shortage of books at my house because I'm a historian. So I just started reading all kinds of stuff and I started learning how to play my drums better. And I did a bunch of wood projects and I'm not as good as you, but you know, I do what I can. I got, I, I was inspired by some of your survival stuff. So I got, I got a new knife and some first aid kit and I'm getting back into my EMT training a little bit. And so I've, I've grown exponentially as a person and as a, just in terms of my knowledge base this year, it hasn't totally been negative. There's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened, but I've really grown. And I asked one of my students, because I'm teaching uh, summer school this year, uh, remote learning. It's all online. I never get to see my students. And she was talking about how bored she was and her family's bored because they're just on their devices all the time. And they've watched all these movies. And I'm like, well, you know, classical Greece talked about leisure is supposed to elevate culture and educate the person. I go, this is your best opportunity to learn something. What have you learned this summer besides summer school? Did you learn how to play an instrument or learn how to play it better? Did you learn how to cook? Did you learn how to sew? Did you learn how to do something out in the garden? And there was no response. Americans don't know how to use their free time for the most part. That's a general sweeping generalization, but we don't teach that in schools. I'm a credential teacher, I'm gonna tell you. Most schools don't have shop classes. They don't teach skills for children to have really good hobbies. Most parents don't teach kids hobbies anymore. That's where you learn your hobbies. Most adults don't take up a new hobby. They do something they did when they were kids because we grew up working in the garage with our father and yeah. we just kept doing stuff like dad did, you know, working on engines, working on wood projects, doing stuff with metal, working with tools. Um, our children today mostly are not learning those skills. Remember, this isn't just about getting work done. This is about being mentally stable as a nation not just as an individual. That's how important this stuff is. So you bring up a great point. I could have been watching a bunch of stupid stuff on YouTube or TikTok, but instead I'm researching the flu. <laughs> and I told a group of young people, I said, this is a rare opportunity that you have right now. Right. But this was in the beginning of it. Yeah. To go into your psyche and to get to know yourself, and you may very well come out of this moving in a vastly different direction. As you should. So take advantage of this opportunity. In a positive way. You know, and I don't think any of them did, you know, because I don't see they've changed much. Yeah. And I did, I remember I got on it for six weeks. I'm doing 12 hour days, I'm building greenhouses and building all kinds of stuff and putting wood shops together. Yeah. It's uh, just like, I got to get prepared. I don't know what's coming, but I've been studying this when it started in China. Yeah. So. And this is it because a lot of your people are into survival stuff. I, and I'll, this is a survival statement. When this thing went down in March, I predicted martial law to my friends, not in public. I might as well say it now. Martial law by the end of the summer. This is before the Black Lives Matter uh, thing flared up and all that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. I predicted it right away. Why? Because I knew that Americans didn't know what to do with their free time and I knew they were going to go crazy by sitting at home and not being able to do what's a lot of times just mindless amusement, mindless yeah. entertainment that doesn't educate and doesn't elevate culture. A lot of what we do as a country is just stupid. It just doesn't help us. So I knew that. I already knew it was going to go there. And then we had the whole thing you know, blow up with the social unrest. And so it doesn't surprise me to see what's happening because I know we don't have the right training 
to be mentally stable with excess amounts of free time. Now, was there any of that back during the Spanish flu? There, there, was there, there like some unrest. We're not doing this. Well, we're there were protests, and there was pro, there was pushback, yeah. but nothing, nothing, nothing like, like I've seen today. Yeah, yeah. And remember, we were also at war. Yeah. And the government was already hyper controlling everything, or not everything, but quite a bit. In comparison to today, they were they had a heavy hand, according to the research that I've read. So we were already trained to do things a certain way and to group think um, out of survival because no you know unless you're very highly skilled you're not going to go out in the woods and survive by yourself indefinitely yeah. right so the that's another thing that came out of this and, and it's why the the importance of being with real people in real time and not just always on a machine is critical and not always having your face covered and and i, I i'm looking forward to the days when we don't have those restrictions i understand we might need to do it now i'm not saying we shouldn't but it does factor um, but anyway, in those days, in that time, with the civics and education and the world war going on, the first real full modern yeah. world war, um, and then the flu on top of that, you know, we were pulling together. Let's just say that. So in wrapping this up, what did you really take away from all your research, from what you knew when you started to research yeah. and then what you really found out about it in comparison to what we've got going on. I don't today. think I knew a lot about it going in. I had watched some documentaries and things. I knew that it was bad and it killed a lot of people and it started in Kansas and not in Spain. But my big take-home points is that we were able a hundred years ago to pull people together in a very short amount of time, make some monumental decisions and implement those decisions with real action, not just talk, in 24 hours. We're talking about shutting a whole city down in 24 hours without a computer and without a smartphone. And it happened. It's not that, oh, well, they talked about it. No, they did it. <laughs> There's city after city. Like, they got together, and once they made up their mind, it was on. And across the country. So they yeah, yeah. have communication across the country yeah. with new technology. So that that know. that takes some nuevos. It takes yeah. some guts. And it was cited in a pandemic, you can't keep everyone happy. It's yeah. just the way it is. It reminds me of the old African proverb, a friend to everyone is a friend to no one. So at times, you just have to do it. And one of my military contact friends said, look, here's how it works in the military. There's, there might be arguing about the decision to be made, but once the decision is made, everybody's in. Yeah. You can't second guess once the decision is made and we go into point, you have to go. And if you start fighting at that point, that's when a lot of people start dying. So my first take home point is like, wow, these people were able to make decisions and make them quickly. The second big point was that the medical system was so much better integrated into the schools. I'm very concerned about schools today because uh, we've got so many children so unhealthy before the flu hit, right? They're morbidly obese. They're completely out of shape. They're mentally like all over the place. And I'm going to tell you, the, the little boys are awful because of video games. They are just, they're completely fried. I mean, I got kids that have literally told me firsthand experience that they spent um, over 30 hours in a weekend playing, you know, a video game, Fortnite. Wow. And one kid said he played like 100 hours in, in one week. He missed Christmas dinner. He wouldn't even come down for Christmas dinner. 
fourth grade. I'm thinking you know? he'd been reading, you know, stuff like this, right. history books. And so, and... so we, we, went, we went from physicians in schools and nurses and checking the students every single day, every single student in the school, really monitoring the health of the kids to today where the kids are completely out of control. So yeah. as a teacher and educator, it's like, okay, here's our opportunity. This is really exposed. You want to talk about racism and equality and the people of lower socioeconomic levels are being affected at a much higher rate and infected at a higher rate and dying at a higher rate. Let's, let's, let's help the tribe here. Let's make the school a healthier place. And so a big take-home point I got is we need to ramp up the school health here, you know, because they did it better than we did in, in a lot of cities, not everywhere. Yeah. So they did it quickly. They used the schools, um, and they were medically supervised very, very well. The, move, the flu moved through very quickly. It was two to six weeks, and that part I didn't get. I had no idea it moved that fast, and people were back to work and opening up. And, and even at the long term, the long term was like four or five months for some places, including a, a longer taper off period. But it's like, hey, man, four or five months at this point... <laughs> Is looking like the drag strip, you know. <laughs> there were early on in this epidemiologists that had been doing this for thirty some odd years said yeah. just that. They said, you know, we've handled this the wrong way. Yep. We should have let it go through. It would have gone through an X amount of days, and we'd be getting over this thing by now. Well, they said all we're doing is extending. The same number of people are going to get sick and die. We're just extending it out. Yeah, New York. You know, they they um, there was a lot of. Um, talk about hygiene and ventilation, because remember the tuberculosis yeah. thing was going on about the same time period too. So uh, New York actually did not shut the schools down and they kept things open a lot better. And New York had the best statistics on the Eastern seaboard, even though they didn't shut down uh, much. And so that was another thing that they were arguing about a little bit, the cities, because they were saying like, there are some places that didn't do all the restrictions and they did better than some places that did do the restrictions. So, and to be honest with you, there's a lot of unanswered questions about the 1918 flu today. They still don't have all the answers. They still can't figure out why it was so much worse. Well, and you're dealing with a virus, so there's a lot of variables. Yeah. From weather to what people are eating, yeah. diet, a lot of different variables that we're not really looking at. Mm -hmm. So when you look at some like a city like San Francisco that's got sea air, well maybe that affects it somehow. Yeah, As that a little to, bit of that was in the reports too. You know, altitude maybe mountain communities higher altitude might have a different effect on the body and how the virus transmits. Which has thrown us because we've yeah. had some pretty good rates in the summer, and we thought well the summer is going to be like yeah. it's going to burn out and it's going to be the winter, but the thing actually hit in spring and summer. Yeah. And so, and it was cited in the reports that um, there is no like one time when only the flu comes through that time. It, it yeah. does vary. And it is, and, and they're all different to some degree. I, I will admit that. Um, but uh, from what I've seen, the 1918 flu was radically worse. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different breed of flu period um, between the flus preceding it and, and following it. And so uh, there's a lot to learn. Um, that database is incredible. And uh, a lot of people spent a lot of time putting that together. And having done some website work for 20 years, I'm just looking at that, like all those, 
all those references linked to all those summary reports. Like it's just a massive monster of data. It's the largest database in the world. Is there a link that I could put in the yes. description for that? Yeah, so, in fact, yeah I'll, I'll that give you, you I'll give you the link for this um, workshop, which I think was a, is extremely valuable reference. But I'm also going to give you the link to where you can get a city report for. It's about probably thirty. 35 different major cities across the United States. And you, if you have, if you want to look at Buffalo, New York, if that's one, you just go there and it's, the reports range from about three to eight pages. Yeah. Uh, and they're written in a way that you can understand them and they're not overly technical. And I just think uh, it's just fascinating reading. I, I encourage people to look at it and also, you know, study places on the coast and the Midwest and cooler climates and in drier climates and just take a little bit of an overview and enjoy your reading and yep. spend your free time learning something. Yeah, that way if somebody says, ah, it's the same thing, it's yeah. like, well, actually, that's what I thought. And I kind of found some different answers. It's given me some peace of mind because when people start spouting off all this bull crap, it's like, well, actually, that's not what happened. It's like, yeah. well, you know, you don't know. It's like, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm citing the biggest database in the world yeah. with decades of research that went into this. So... Uh, I guess you can say that it's not accurate, but if that's not accurate, we're in big trouble because at some point you got to believe somebody, right? Yeah. Well, Ron, I want to thank you for coming on down to the bunker. Thanks, man. I enjoyed the bunker, man. Yes. I have to give you a grand tour. So my name is Mark, and I want to thank you for tuning in to News from the Bunker Special Report. And you can also catch this on the podcast version. And you can go to tuckersurvival.com where you can check out our blogs get links to different uh, things we got going on, like I say, the podcasting and things like that. And we'll be doing some stuff on gardening and raising chickens and all kinds of cool stuff. So again, I want to thank you for tuning in to News from the Bunker Special Report with Ron Jones. You have a good time out there and stay safe. News from the Bunker is brought to you by Tucker Survival and is produced by MBJ Media Services.